0: My name is Manish Jain, and I live in Udaipur, Rajasthan, which is in North India. And I work with uh, a movement here called Shikshantar. And uh, the subtext is the People's Institute for Rethinking Education and Development. And uh, we have been working for the last 20 years here and been launching lots of projects around uh, unlearning, sustainable living, and gift culture.
1: And I wonder, maybe a good place to start is, what do you think uh, in 2018 is the relationship between our conventional approach to education and the state of health of our imagination? So
0: I think uh, uh, in my own journey, what I found out was that uh, 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 most people think that education is a solution going forward uh, for the world and to deal with the, the different crises on the planet. And I found that the education system current one is actually part of the problem. Uh, not only is it irrelevant, but it also is actually creating uh, reproducing the same sicknesses uh, we have on the planet and one of them is to uh, one of the purposes of that is to actually destroy people's imagination uh, and so I think it has played a significant role I see all over India and Asia to to destroy the sources and one of the sources at least in India imagination is local language uh, local language and culture so education has, Basically, told people here that uh, all of our uh, people who speak local language that are back backwards, uncivilized, um, not modern, uh, and don't have much to contribute to the world going forward. So, part of our work is to kind of recover that wisdom and imagination. These are go hand in hand, actually, um, in traditional culture. So. And to remind people that we actually have much more uh, than we thought we had, so' it's a sense of also I think imagination is connected to sense of abundance uh, moving out of the scarcity mindset so um, so I think yeah the current system is actually a a very big culprit in actually limiting what people's imagination has been and Probably filling them with a lot of fear as well.
1: And do you think that's do you think do you think that's deliberate or or kind of an accidental, unintended side effect of the of the demands of a kind of growth based economy?
0: No, no, I think it's very deliberate. It's uh, by design. Uh, we all say the people same people who designed the. Uh, army system and the prison system and the factory system designed them. So basically the same design for the education system. And it's to, you know, uh, even our government says it's the Ministry of Human Resource Development so quite blatant about what its agenda is. Uh, so it sees people as part of this larger model of, of economic growth which only it comes basically from three ways, right? From stupid consumers from uh, people who have no regard for their ecological systems and want to mind the hell out of them. And from uh, people who are, uh, who can only find uh, happiness through addiction. That's a growth economy in India, basically. And that's what education prepares for. I always tell people here that, uh, you know, because we have like, my grandmother never went to school. Uh, quite a big inspiration for me in terms of her wisdom and imagination and compassion. And uh, said so there's always this conversation, you know, of like in India, which doesn't exist as much in the West, I think, but of, of people who have not gone to school or who are so-called illiterates. So I would say, who's wasting more water? Is it the educated people or the uh, illiterates? Who is, who is generating more pollution on the planet? Eating more junk food, so the answer is like you know, obviously There's something wrong with this, uh, uh, with the kind of education we've been given for sure to feed us, you know, fit us into a into the global economy. And I think what's nefarious about it is that it works best when you destroy people's connection to their culture, their community, to their ecosystem. And so it's by design done a very good job of that here and most places in the world I've visited
1: and I mean his, historically India is one of the most imaginative cultures there's ever been I mean that, that that's that's quite an achievement to create an education system to dismantle that Have, uh, over what sort of time frame of, uh, has that happened do you think
0: well the I mean, the British had brought it in the 1830s, that model of education, and uh, <clears throat> post-British uh, the Indian nation state which has expanded that. It's really 100 years, basically, which it's been very active. And it's not fully dismantled, I think, one still goes to rural areas. We have a word actually, dugar, which is a very interesting word you would like to know. I don't know if you, there was actually some people who wrote about Jugard management and uh, in some management circles. So, Jugard means like um, makeshift or improvised or innovative, you know, taking whatever you have and creating something more uh, beautiful. So, upcycling is an example of Jugard, but it's across the with food. Um, I talked about, for example, you know. Um, we talk in india about uh, my grandmother and a lot of grandmothers here know about how to make hundreds of dishes using vegetable peels so from every from watermelon peels to pea pod peels to mango peels to you know so many different kinds of peels which are thrown out is that easily because we can reclaim that technology we can feed as easily another billion people on the planet with us. And those are obviously, as you know, the most nutritious parts of of, of the fruits and vegetables, right? Is the peels, all of the vitamins are in that. Imagination has been such a big part of everyday life. You know, even down to something like vegetable peels, What do, how can you get amazing recipes with that? Um, people explored Another, I just met a rice specialist in India. Um, who was actually good friends with Vandana also? Um, and he was telling me at one point in India, uh, guess how many varieties of rice were there? Uh,
1: 2,000?
0: Uh, documented varieties that used to exist in India 114,000 varieties of rice. <laughs>
1: Wow. Isn't and that now? mind-blowing? And now?
0: And right so there's only, after the advent of modern education, there's only 7,000 varieties left. Wow. And most of them are, another, I would say, 80% are probably at risk of extinction in the next 20 years. Wow. So, so this uh, is what the monoculture mind does, right?
1: And so, so you're involved with this idea of, of uh, unlearning and unschooling. Could you tell us a little bit about what that means?
0: So they are two, two interconnected but different things. Uh, uh, unlearning is really saying that uh, basically starts with the idea that the crisis that's facing us is runs much deeper than kind of simple um, management shifts or technological fixes but there's a deeper question and crisis around how we perceive perceive ourselves in the world, and uh, many of the hum- assumptions we're holding uh, assumptions about uh, um, uh, what's what's happiness or what's developed or what's hygienic or what's yeah uh, dirty or what's uh, you know all of the, so many notions that we have been conditioned within the industrial Monoculture mindset, which, uh, or you know, even how we see money, for example, uh, or death, or love. Uh, so, so many of these things we've been conditioned with to fit in the industrial mind. We need to actually start to deeply look at, uh, relook at a lot of those assumptions. Uh, otherwise, we risk really reproducing those deeper things, just using new, more sophisticated technologies and approaches to do that. So. The unlearning thing is actually trying to, um, to, part of it is, a lot of it is uh, related to decolonizing ourselves and we say for decolonization is not just for people in the global South, we think people in the global North have been more colonized by this system than we have actually, uh, in terms of how they're trapped by the kind of industrial global economy. Um, and uh, unschooling is actually uh, one mode um, we are really talking a lot about self-designed learning modalities in the world uh, and unschooling is one mode which means that uh, we uh, consciously choose not to send our children to school uh, but also to uh, look at the impact how school plays out and not only uh the school setting, but also how it's infiltrated into many aspects of our lives uh, and our mindsets, for example, competition, feeling of competition and comparison all the time. Uh, so that's part of the school mind, you know? Uh, uh, re- re- resistance to diversity, you're not able, able to hold diversity or chaos very well. That's also part of the school mind. So... It's not just for what you do with the kids, it's also a lot about what the parents have to relocate in themselves. But the difference between homeschooling and unschooling is that we are actually trusting the children and co-creating learning programs with each of them based on their uh, personal needs and also based on how we try to rebuild a larger connection with community. And things So I think a lot of, at least in India, it's different than what I've seen in the West because there's a lot of individualized things going on with um, homeschooling and women But in India, we've been really trying to link it to larger questions of sustainable lifestyle, reimagining economy, um, uh, re-looking and reconnecting to... Uh, Different uh, sense of what is spiritual and sacred. Uh, so many other questions as well. So it's not just. It's like once you take your child out of the school, then what's your alternative? Alternative is life. And uh, when you start wanting to live your life differently, those are all the sort of questions we start tackling, engaging with.
1: And uh, how do you? Uh, uh, I mean, is is. Is that culturally something that feels very... Because from the outside, you know, India India is is very sort of driven uh, economy and like growth at all costs kind of an economy. You know, if you choose to take your children out of that and to explore a very different paradigm for them to grow up within a very different kind of paradigm, do you feel very sort of um, isolated or... Uh, uh, at odds with the prevailing culture, I suppose?
0: Um, Well, with the kind of mainstream middle-class aspiration, it definitely is at odds with that. Um, With a lot of... uh, What's interesting is I usually tell people that the idea of unschooling or self-designed learning is at least 4,000 years old. So it's not a new idea that we're coming up with, it's really part of our... If you go back and look at uh, Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and so many other sacred texts, you'll find tons and tons of stories of self-designed learners and that, and even radical critiques of the formalized education system, even of that time. Uh, so there's a very famous story of uh, uh indigenous boy called Eklavia. Uh, which is, everybody knows a story. And that's, he's basically a story of a, of a self-designed, brilliant self-designed learner. Yeah. Uh, so that's a cultural reference point that people can at least, uh, it's not like outside of culture. Then we have other people. I don't know. I'm sure you've heard of Kabir. Uh, he's a, what, 17th century English poet, weaver. So he never went to any school. Uh, he's a self-designed learner. So, There's lots and lots of examples historically of people like that. Even then, going into the the works of Gandhi and Tagore and you know other really inspiring leaders, uh, most of them were advocating this kind of much more radical approach to learning. Mm -hmm. So, so there's a lot of vision, but it's definitely at odds with what the middle class aspiration that has been fed by to be part of the global economy. But we we're finding more and more people uh, since we've been doing it for 20 years are quite, uh, are opening up to the idea. Um, uh, and so that's what's quite interesting. There are various factors which are probably making people a bit more receptive to that. Uh, particularly a lot of the people who are the IT geeks. Mm. Uh, they, I think they're tired of Running the rat race of that, and they're very open to looking at not only unschooling kinds of ideas, but connecting to farming again and uh, uh, natural building, different lifestyle also. So, so there is a counter movement even amongst the middle class around that. It's very uh,
1: it, it, it's very tempting writing writing a book looking at the 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 need for an urgent sort of great reimagining in our culture you know a kind of a, a repositioning of imagination as one of the central purposes of, of, of our culture which has been really eroded that when you make that argument it's 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 quite tempting to say so we need to shut down all the schools and uh, we need to design a completely different system where people uh, don't go to school but they have a very different kind of an experience you know, it, it, which in in the UK in twenty eighteen doesn't feel very realistic. You know that actually uh, there are many many schools and a lot of them really aren't very great at all, but they're what we have and that they're where kids go. Can we do much with with the? Is it is it a yin and yang? You go to school or you unschool? Is the is the education system capable? Of, of reform to a degree that is actually useful or is or is it, a, is it all or nothing?
0: Well, I spent several years in UNESCO and UNICEF and the World Bank, so I would say it's all or nothing. <laughs> okay.
1: so, so, which is, I,
0: resigned, I resigned from those places because I didn't see any hope for the reform. There's a vested interest, right? If people go to a, a different kind of education process, the first thing, and they become caring, creative, imaginative, sensitive human beings, what's going to happen to the global economy? It'll come crashing down. They'll say, We're not going to give our, you our rivers and our lakes. I mean, you can look at, uh, I'm sure you know Niamgiri. Do you know Niamgiri and Orissa? No. Niyamgiri, if you look it up, um, Google it. It's there's a tribal indigenous community there. They had a historic victory a couple of years ago. They stopped Vedanta mining company. Okay. And these are people who've never gone to school. They said, "You can keep all your money. <laughs> We're not giving you our mountains. <laughs> our ancestors live in this mountain. These are sacred mountains, right?" And but there was an article that came in uh, BBC where they had interviewed uh, um, somebody from the movement. And that movement, you know, their last line was, we are saving it right now, but I don't know what's going to happen after 10, 15 years because all of our children are going to school. <laughs> wow. So. Can you, so.
1: could, could, could you send me a link to that article?
0: Uh, I would have to Google it. Yeah, it's a few years old, but I could try to look for it. Uh, so, what I'm saying is that the people who are controlling the system uh, don't have any particular vested interest, is to keep the growth as it is. And uh, unless there's a visionary new, you know, teachers, government comes in and says, we actually are willing to compromise all of our economic growth models and really actually let people be free and think and be sensitive and develop themselves. I think, I mean, this is what a connection I think is important for, and I've been quite surprised when Naresh was here, I was trying to engage with him, I was like, this is a core issue for Transition Town, Mm -hmm. Yeah. you know, because and this is where my interest in Transition Town initially came from is because the solution to, to the educational crisis is not reforming schools it's actually rebuilding re-engaging healthy community life where you my my kid can walk throughout my neighborhood and I don't have to worry which whose house she's going into uh, because everyone knows of me my kid can walk down my street today she sees in the, in a small city she sees, uh, a fresh dairy, dairy where milk is being brought fresh every day from nearby farmers. She sees uh, a flour grinding mill, fresh flour every day being produced. She sees uh, 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 a, a barber shop here. She sees a tailor where clothes are being produced. She sees a place where they produce um, uh, a little shop where they're producing. Um, blankets, stuffed blankets, and stuffed mattresses. So, so many. You know, one of my friends says that uh, in in villages, kids grow up seeing processes. In cities, they grow up seeing products. Right. So, where we need to invest our energy and time my argument is not in trying to fix schools but actually building communities where our kids can wander around they can find people to mentor them they can find uh, people who are passionate about life they can have uh, space to do experiments Uh, so this is what actually when we've been working on a process for the last 15 years called Udapur as a learning city so we've created a lot of these kinds of spaces, there's lots of these neighborhoods where those things are happening now, and uh, at least, you know, in our life right now, this year probably saying shut down all schools is not there, but can we start to invite people to uh, say no for a year to school? Mm. Actually, it would be interesting, Gandhi at the time of 1947 when the British left, you know what his proposal was? He said shut down all the schools for three years, and let us reimagine what we want. Really? Wow. Yeah. Nobody had the political will to follow through on it, right? <laughs> like that's what that was. What do you say? Is that we need to really spend time reimagining the system. Um, and we're not giving giving our kids that time. And we're not giving you know, and most of the people who are school teachers should have never become school teachers. This is another problem that we have, right? So, but we have, in India, it's very interesting. We're told, uh, there's a shortage of teachers everywhere in India and every other country. But if you go on the streets, there's so many people who know how to do things, who are brilliant, amazing, doing beautiful things, who are spiritual gurus, who are awesome mechanics and know how to fix everything you bring them. But none of these who are fantastic artisans, uh, farmers, you know, but none of these people are regarded as teachers by the existing system, right? So we actually find that we, once we step out of the boundaries of school, we're no longer poor, backward, underdeveloped people. We are actually very brilliant, so abundant resources of learning all around us. So for us, at least, it's very important to kind of step out and see that we have so much that is, uh, that is uh, so much potential. And I was doing one exercise with some friends, uh, trying to, right now, you know, it's actually very, even in the West, it's popular. Uh, apprenticeship learning is coming back in vogue, right? Yeah. So in India, the apprenticeships learning system is humongous. Probably worth, if we had to create it from scratch, probably trillions of dollars it would cost. But none of our educationists, people, all the school, nobody can see that this is an entire system that's parallelly working in this country. So we have a lot of other resources, which part of our work is in the imagination sense, is to know that we have much more than just working with this one system. Even, you know, a lot of people say, oh, the school system is so big in India, we need to focus on... I said, the forest system is bigger. Nature is much bigger. How many educators are actually really looking at going and getting more kids exploring into nature, farming, all of these things?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, so we have actually many parallel systems that are functioning um, for learning, and so our effort is actually saying, let's give those some attention again. Local language. There's so much cultural production that happens still, even and hasn't been wiped out by the in local language. So. None of that has
1: anything to do with schools. One of the one of the the debates that the, that has been happening here over the last couple of years is kind of, you know, saying, well, um, India and China are are getting better at making everything. So what's our unique thing? Well, our, our unique thing should be around creativity and imagination. But it yeah. always. But those debates are always about harnessing that creativity and imagination in the pursuit of economic growth you know so we sh- we should be the best at designing apps and uh, mm-hmm. all this sort of stuff not uh, not the kind of things that you're talking about so we, we-, we go a little bit of the way sometimes but yeah but you know the problem
0: is there is there's uh, to what Gandhi talked about the head heart hands and home right mm-hmm. and all, I think that real imagination would have to be deeply engaged in all of those to, to generate real imagination. Yeah. And so if you're thinking that you can sit and do the apps without using your hands, without creating things, without having a lot of space for compassionate relationships, I don't think that you're going to get very far in creativity and imagination. No,
1: Absolutely. Um, have you i wonder what your thoughts are on the on the impacts of uh that you've seen in in indian culture uh, and i i wonder it's probably the same as here but i'm i'm interested to know if it feels any different the of the the impact of digital technologies on on attention span and imagination uh particularly over the last ten years or so with the introduction of smartphones and social media how have you how have you seen the impacts on 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 everybody but also on on teenagers and on, and on attention spans within within indian culture
0: yeah for for uh the impact is growing I, I, it's not like uh in most places it's still not like uh you know, you have you walk into a, a train and everybody is glued to to their smartphones. It's not that bad yet. Okay. But there's a growth in terms of how many people are using it, and uh, I guess on, on video gaming culture and pornography for sure are huge huge sources of that. I wrote though it's interesting. I wrote something. I can send you a link um, called TEDxItis. <laughs> uh, the disease of the TEDx stuff. So, um, so I think in a lot of young people who are going, who are you know, college, who are using some of these, a lot of the more sensitive ones are going into TEDx and these spaces, which I think is actually having a very negative impact on uh, now on young people. Um, so beyond the obvious things, what you were you referring to, which is which is growing uh, in segments of India, I think it's more uh, upper middle class phenomena still, or middle class actually, where kids are using a lot of these smartphones and things, but and glued to it, and it's creating, you know, obviously uh, uh, behavior where less kids are outside playing and they're more less social also with. Relatives and babysitting effect, all those things are there, but I think I would even question the so-called good things that people are getting out of it uh, in terms of uh, like TEDx talks and things like that. you know, where they get a very um, overly romanticized version of what uh, social change can look like, and' quite comfortable being armchair. Supporters of those kinds of things, you know, rather than rolling up their sleeves and getting into actually creating stuff. So,
1: apart from my TEDx's, of course, (coughs) which I wonder, I I wonder for you what what you would, if if you were to compile a a list of the the ideal uh, set of the, the ideal conditions for a really Vigorous imagination, what would they be?
0: Um, the ideal conditions for vigorous imagination. Uh, so, oh, I should tell you just before I answer uh, this, we actually did start up a project two years ago uh, in a government school. Uh, up to now, we've done a lot of basically things outside of school. Uh, community learning spaces, centers, uh, and we have our own alternative university, you probably know about it, Swarad University. But uh, we took on a government school, and so the idea with that was to set up so exactly what you were referring to others earlier, but what we did is we've created an unschool in the government school. So it's a parallel system uh, to introduce a virus, peer-to-peer learning culture virus, self-designed learning culture virus, into government schools. So it runs every day for four and a half, five hours a day uh, after school hours. But I wouldn't call it an after-school program. Uh, I would call it an unschool because it seeks to kind of undermine everything schooling is doing. It's not an add-on to the school, but the entire culture of competition, labeling, um, stressing textbooks and examinations, it actually tries to undermine all of those things and letting kids have time and space. So the reason I refer to that is, so one of the things is having time every day. So I've been quite critical recently of a lot of people who go and say, we'll do a little workshop in the school, you know, two hour workshop or two day workshop, and they feel very good. We've introduced something about gender or, transition town or this or that or solar, the two-day thing. I'm saying that this kind of thing needs, uh, people need, kids need time and space. So at least three, four hours a day to freely explore, uh, engage, use their hands, connect, collaborate, uh, do that kind of that without any kind of necessarily intervention from any kind of uh, professional teacher or anything. Uh,
1: so how did that, you get them to let you in? Uh, how did you get them to let you in when, when, you're, when you're so actively undermining the very assumptions underpinning know, the whole system?
0: <laughs> and uh, the funniest thing is I have a, a corporate social responsibility project supporting it too.
1: <laughs> so
0: it's a strange, uh, unholy alliance that we but okay, let's play as long as it, they can sign out any day once they figure out what's really happening. But let's play for it. Well, as long as these different some people in the government, uh, a local uh, uh, member of legislation, legislative assembly, is a close friend, and a, a corporate guy who's an old friend, they all said let's do something. So. It's there. I don't know how long it lasts, but it's been two years, and it's amazing, amazing kinds of things we see the kids getting. And so I think the first thing is really time and space to create it uh, daily, because it's not just a few days a month or it's like really having this every day. Mm. To to do that is necessary. Uh, the second thing is. Um, uh, Connection to nature in different ways, so whether it's forests or, you know, I think in the UK the thing I've found um, the most interesting rally around is forest schools. and the mainstream, people are exploring there. You know, um, um, space to also uh, uh, use your hands, make things, build things. So in this in this government school we have a maker space there. Also, we have a slow food chefs academy and urban farm. This is in Delhi, right in the middle of Delhi. Uh,
1: Sounds amazing. I want to go.
0: Yeah, I'll send you a link to that. And then there's a um, community media center there, so kids are making films and doing all kinds of projects out of that. And then there's a, uh, there's a hub on um, arts and music. So there's kids have formed a band, their are dance groups, uh, theater, all kinds of stuff they're doing. So every day, four hours a day, they get to do it. And they get to move around. It. It's not like if you're in one thing, you just sit and do that one thing. Mm. So this idea of cross-disciplining, multi-potentiality, um, being able to dabble in many things and not just get stuck in one, uh, that that's also important to have that freedom, I think. Right. Uh,
1: it sounds. It sounds like it's. It uh, feeds your curiosity. It's. It's really a lot of it is around curiosity. You're you're feeding yeah. their curiosity.
0: Yeah, and you're just you know, and and having a then a culture of collaboration, right? Where it's not like being about being the best or the first or whatever. It's having that culture really, which is about open source sharing and really. So that's a lot of unwiring that's needed for that, you know. Um, the same thing in our university. I'd say it's one of the most interesting because you have 20 people in each cohort who are doing all kinds of different things. But if you bring them together in their collaborative spirit of friendship, in the end of one year, you know, you know about 20 different things because just because they're friends, you've never studied it or you've had to do anything. But you're talking, you're listening to them talk about their stuff, and, you know, just helping them out sometimes. So you actually pick up, you know, across. Farming, uh, eco architecture, faci- uh, art of hosting facilitation, nonviolent communication, all of these things just by hanging out with people, not without necessarily having to teach them anything.
1: Mm. Learning by osmosis.
0: So, collaborative learning is very important to put in.
1: Mm. So, um, a question I've asked everybody that I've interviewed. Uh, mm-hmm. and, the, and they've all come up with really fascinatingly different answers to this. And you may have kind of partly answered this already, but if you uh, were elected as the president of <laughs> India, and, <laughs> and whereas uh, Donald Trump ran on a Make America Great Again platform, if you had yeah. run on a Make India Imaginative Again platform, what might be some of the key things that you would start in your first hundred days in the job? Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> shut down the whole government as well, <laughs> as well as the schema. yeah
0: Yeah, that would be. Um... So, in India, it's a bit tricky to answer that question without, because there's some things I would start, which puts you, if it's not rightly understood, you'll be put in the category of fundamentalist. So, but um, probably I would try to really put a lot of effort into going and learning from uh, indigenous cultures, indigenous communities still that exist here, um, supporting people to go and um, we look at a lot of the traditional wisdom. you know like I don't know if you know um, they're actually just speaking of Tetak Anupam Mishra. Uh, he is a, he passed away recently he's a Gandhian. He did a, did a lot of work on traditional water harvesting systems. okay. This would being in transition, blow your mind actually to see the kinds of things people created a thousand years ago. Mm, sure without any without any you know um uh, uh what do you call uh tractors or without any jcps or without anything with no kind cement. of stuff without cement exactly i mean that what people are able to create it's mind-blowing i mean that would just i mean, every whenever i heard i get goosebumps talking about it or listening because <laughs> it's like how do people do that, you know, like, how could they, and it's a beautiful, aesthetically beautiful structures, mm. like nothing, nothing can match that today, so, so I would really encourage people to go and, you know, uh, look at that, or like these thousands of varieties of rice, how, how can that, that just blows your mind, mm. or, you know, the, um, you must know about this living bridges, you know about living bridges?
1: I don't, I don't think so, but I might. Okay,
0: so the northeast of India, uh, Shillong, Meghalaya, the state of there, They have these things called... Um, you've seen that movie, what was that? Um, uh, the one with the, the aliens uh, who stopped the mining of their planet. Uh, Avatar. Avatar, yeah. So... You remember the scene where they're like talking to those plants and stuff? Yeah,
1: yeah. You know?
0: So the living bridges is something, when I saw it, it, was like that, you know, like they have created amazing bridges with living root systems. Wow. And those bridges take about 15 years, 20 years to make, but they last like 500 years. <laughs> and wow. so there's like this amazing human nature partnership, that's possible. I mean, so that water systems, these bridges. I would really encourage people because this is something. When I was in uh, Schumacher a few months ago, so this we were teaching a course by O and I and by I don't know if you met him, a uh, Nigerian guy, um, and it was basically about the post anthropo post post activism. Okay. And so, really looking at human nature, uh, the intelligence of nature, and human nature partnerships, and how do we create an activism that's that and an education that is uh, uh, is 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 inspired by by that? And, and so, I would show examples of where that's actually how people have in their great imagination and. And intelligence really partnered with nature in fantastic ways.
1: And and what do you think that the um, activism, you know, like it, 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 it feels here like to me, like a lot of climate change activism, you know, where mm-hmm. we're trying to engage and inspire a lot of people whose imaginations are shot to pieces and whose attention spans are shot to pieces. So they won't read anything uh um, yeah. because they're they they can not uh and they're ima- and basically what we're trying to do is in, is invite them to imagine something other than business as usual because business as usual is going to kill us all uh yeah but people's imaginations are, are are in pieces what what for you does a does a um does activism look like that that, that really connects with and and feeds the imagination
0: so, at least, I mean, that's a, <laughs> these are tough questions, I to but... Uh,
1: <laughs> well, it wouldn't be any fun if I asked you easy ones, would it?
0: Yeah, so, so for me, at least, one answer to that is, see, we are, in India, still predominantly an oral, tactile, visual culture. So, my activism would, would actually start with, with recognizing that, and so, right now, for example... Um, this um, uh, local languages are full of wisdom and imagination of people. Like all those examples, I mean, the the bridges, the water harvesting, the uh, all the knowledge about uh, um, plant medicines. Uh, all of this is actually derived in each local language. You know, we have a museum here. This will blow your mind too. Um, a museum a friend created, uh, who was an ethnomusicologist, around brooms.
1: Okay. You know brooms. Brooms for sweeping.
0: Yes. Guess how many, how many, how many kinds of brooms does he have in this museum?
1: Five thousand.
0: <laughs> Let's see how tough your, how good your imagination is,
1: Ralph. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to work how big this museum is. I don't know, 5,000? No, it's a
0: small, small museum. It's a small little museum.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, they have 5,000 different kinds of brooms, and each broom is made with a different kind of grass from a different ecosystem. Wow. <laughs> you know, and those the knowledge of that is in local language, mm. So, which is rooted to place, which is rooted to... Um, spirit, uh, which is rooted to community. So my activism is actually connecting to that uh, in different kinds of ways. And a lot of activists here are, it's very tough because a lot of activists are not, are disconnected from that and there's a lot very suspicious of that, uh, which is a colonial hangover. A lot of that uh, uh, they don't have respect. Like still in India, people think that uh, tribal communities, indigenous communities are stupid and backwards and you know, should, tribal culture should be wiped out. Mm. Uh, that's kind of the mainstream perspective, even the government perspective around these indigenous cultures. So, um, so it's difficult to do that. But a lot of, in a lot of the languages, there's still this com- incredible capacity to imagine mm. uh, a different reality. Um, and I experienced it with my grandmother actually. That was my first. Uh, real way to actually start to see that you know even another i'm working on a film i don't know when it'll come out but on the um how many ways that humans use animal shit
1: <laughs> wow that's that's a big that's going to be a big museum
0: yeah but you can think all the <laughs> oh, it's cow shit buffalo shit donkey shit horse shit um, squirrel shit. I mean, hundred. There's so many ways that people thought of shit and not as a waste thing, but they actually were using it in everyday life, you know, to solve problems that they were facing.
1: It'll be a very, very big museum that nobody will want to go to. <laughs> Let's go <laughs> to the it's shit that, museum. Use yeah.
0: our shit someday, Rob. <laughs>